Nicolas Bournois of Capitalink again, and uh, I'd like to welcome you uh, to this uh, session. We are privileged to have with us uh, John McCown, uh, non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Maritime Strategy and founder of Blue Alpha Capital. I know John for quite some time, and I have to say two things. Uh, I mean, there are so many things you can say about John, but two things in particular. Number one, I think very few people, if any, know the John Zach space better than John. And number two, uh, it's fascinating and amazing that John keeps track of all these uh, container volumes month after month. I was just talking to him about the research that he does for a long time now, very consistently and very persistently. And uh, his data and reports obviously uh, are widely read and uh, quite acclaimed. So we are delighted to have him with us today. Before turning over the floor to him, uh, I'd like to mention logistically that uh, if you have any questions, uh, John uh, will uh, give you his email at the end of his slide presentation, but you can also email any questions to webinars at capitalink.com. Again, webinars at capitalink.com, and we are going to share them with John. And in closing, this session will also be available for a replay to be accessed upon demand at any point. Uh, after a couple of hours of the live session, it will be uh, available as an archive. And John, thank you. Uh, the floor is yours, and thank you for all your help and support. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Nicholas, and thank you for having this forum. Uh, pleasure to be here to kind of talk about the always exciting uh, container sector. Let me pull up my share. Uh, let, let me start by saying I'm an unapologetic supporter of the Jones Act. I'm, I'm also a big believer in free and fair trade. I don't see those as opposing views. One aspect of that is the national security issue. Another aspect relates to not treating this domestic industry different from others. The understandable cost differences in the Jones Act arise from our labor and safety laws, regulations, and practices. In other words, our economic system. Just because those occur offshore and out of sight doesn't mean they should operate outside of that umbrella. I have no horse in this race. My views come from lots of relevant experience and appreciated the facts and the numbers. I thought I'd give an overview of the Jones Act container sector, contrast it with the larger industry, talk about facts versus myths, what would happen without the Jones Act, and what's really behind stepped up criticism. Sorry, let me advance my slide. The Jones Act container sector involves the movement of containers to and from Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. All of these markets are driven by the food, clothes, and other basic products the residents consume. As such, they are highly imbalanced with outbound loads from three to eight times the number of inbound loads. They all tend to be stable markets with growth mostly influenced by population changes. Containerization was born in the coastwise lanes. The first offshore lane was Puerto Rico, and services to Alaska and Hawaii followed quickly. All of those markets were reaping the benefits of containerization before there was any transpacific or transatlantic services. Today, the Jones Act container sector represents some three quarters of the total revenue of the Jones Act, and round numbers are at about $3 billion annually compared to $1 billion annually for the tanker sector. So you can see that these services are a vital supply chain to each of these markets. 
For six decades, they've provided consistent, stable service that's in sharp contrast to what occurred in the broader international lanes the last few years. This graph is the monthly year-over-year -year change in inbound boxes into the U.S. over the last six years. The first couple of years showed the above GDP growth containers have typically shown, although not as high of multiple as in the past. Both the announcements and implementation of tariffs began to have some effect and move the changes away from being just a pulse of economic activity. But the big changes came from the impact of the pandemic. As you can see, after the shock that caused some short-term declines, volume growth began ramping up. A sharp uptick in volume from consumer purchases of goods was evident by mid-2020. It kept going to a peak change of 68% in March 2021. Those growth rates decelerated just as quick. Between that and tough year-over-year -year comparisons, we're now back to more typical growth by the beginning of 2022. In the last six months, the growth rate has gone negative, but a lot of that is coming off a sugar high related to previous goods purchases. No doubt some of those were front-loading items that would have been purchased later. Some two-thirds of our container loads come from Asia. The overall Asia-North America container lane represents one quarter of total worldwide container miles. The other big east-west lane, Asia-Europe, also represents one quarter of total worldwide container miles. While the U.S. had the most pronounced spikes up and down, most of the other lanes showed similar but less pronounced changes over the same period. For the last three months, total inbound volume is effectively back to where it was before the pandemic. With that, congestion in terms of ships waiting for births has gone away, but the lingering effects of that congestion are still with us. This is the quarterly net income of the entire container shipping industry going back to 2016. In the quarters prior to the pandemic, the sector was losing money more often than it was making money, with a number of quarters at break even. This pattern of generally poor performance has been typical since the financial crisis in 2008. When it became clear in early 2020 that COVID would be a shock to the world's economies, the carriers immediately cut back on capacity. When you're at break even and you see an event that will have a double digit percentage effect on volume for an undetermined time, you have little choice but to adapt. As it would turn out, the volume reduction was short-lived as whatever was lost was made up from consumers going on a goods purchasing binge. The work-at-home lifestyles, switching expenditures from services to goods, and government support programs all played roles. The volume that those goods purchases certainly contributed to the favorable supply-demand dynamic for carriers throughout the pandemic. However, a much bigger contributor was the congestion that had the effect of reducing capacity. Nowhere was this more pronounced than in Southern California. At its peak, there were 110 container vessels waiting offshore for berths. A typical Asia to West Coast deployment involves a 35-day round-trip voyage with five vessels resulting in weekly service. Prior to the pandemic, those vessels would operate like clockwork with no real delays at any point. But if all of a sudden those same ships were waiting two and three, three weeks offshore for a berth, the 35-day voyage becomes a 49- or 56-day voyage. That has the effect of reducing capacity 29% and 38% respectively. The net effect was a prolonged period of an unusually large and favorable supply-demand dynamic for carriers. This resulted in this hockey stick curve related to industry results. 
Starting in the fourth quarter of 2020, the industry set new quarterly net income records for seven straight quarters. The peak was in the second quarter of 2022, when net income was $63 billion. That represented a net income to revenue margin of 46%. These incredible results were fueled by pricing, which exploded. Spot rates that move a relatively small amount of the loads peaked at six times what they were before the pandemic. Overall pricing measures based on all loads, including the more prevalent contract rates, peaked at three times what it was prior to the pandemic. Pricing has been trending down, but the latest available monthly data shows spot rates are still 25% above pre-COVID levels, were overall, while overall pricing remains 60 or 85% higher. In sharp contrast, the Jones Act container sector experienced none of this operational chaos and their dedicated terminals were unaffected by congestion. Stable and consistent service has been provided throughout the pandemic. Let's highlight some of the biggest misconceptions about the Jones Act container sector. First, it's much less about the ship as everything related to it is just around one third of total cost. The biggest ship cost fuel is unaffected by the Jones Act. You're left with some 20% of costs that are affected by in the form of crewing cost and building cost. The crewing cost is some 2.7 times more than typical foreign flag ships. But that isn't a surprise when you realize it's just one half the difference in per capita income when the US is compared to the rest of the world. Building a container ship in the U.S. based on recent actual examples will cost some four times more. But here again, prevailing wage differences in what is a particularly labor-intensive sector drives that difference. When you take those two factors together, you're looking at about a 3.5 times multiple on something involving 20% of total cost. Going through the math, that works out to the Jones Act making costs some 16% higher. The Jones Act was where container shipping was born. It also gave birth to the super tanker and was where welding replaced rivets and the techniques of modular shipbuilding was developed. While those innovations go back more than half a century, the Jones Act remains a thought leader today with new ideas and approaches. More recently, it was where we saw the first ship propelled by diesel electric, the first vessels to move 53 foot containers and the first LNG fuel ships. The critics don't understand the container sector and they mainly focus on the building cost difference that they inflate. They imply that shipping costs would come down some exaggerated multiple without the Jones Act. They make nonsensical claims related to taking cargos from other modes that ignore the non-ship related cost in container shipping. I address some of these accurate claims in articles available on my, my Medium page that you can go to uh, for more detail and the specific numbers. If there were no Jones Act, most of the lanes would be quickly taken over by foreign carriers as the 16% cost reduction is above the typical Jones Act profit margin. That takeover would be in the form of the existing international services. They have more inbound loads and the more outbound loads of the Jones Act would fit nicely with those services. Existing Asia West Coast services would take over the Hawaii trade and existing South America East Coast services would take over the Puerto Rico trade. In both cases, there would be little out of route miles for ships to stop outbound in Honolulu and San Juan. The net effect would be that existing back and forth shuttle services would be, be replaced by stop off services. 
Outbound shippers wouldn't experience a service change, but for inbound shippers, it would be a massive upheaval. To get a load back to the mainland, they would have to go the long way with transit times four or five times what they had with direct service. More importantly, to even get a load on, they will need to match the rate the carrier can get from its shippers and its existing headhaul service. Because these existing rates are low owing to big imbalances in the existing subtle, subtle services, they would experience a double wallop. Their shipping would go up by an even higher multiple than transit times, geometrically poor, serv poor service at geometrically higher cost. For pineapple shippers in Hawaii or rum shippers in Puerto Rico, sectors that actually employ people to produce their exports, it would be terrible from both a service and a pricing standpoint if there was no Jones Act. We now can point to what actually happened during the pandemic that could make the ramifications even worse. Without a Jones Act, some or all of the existing domestic services would become sublets of larger international deployments and then be linked to what's going on in those volatile markets. The stability and consistency of existing domestic services would then be exposed to potential chaos as dramatically shown during the pandemic. Something that actually happened during the pandemic was that carriers elected to return boxes to Asia empty rather than move low price export loads. The thought was that the extra time involved in locking up equipment on both sides just wasn't worth it, and their best results would come from positioning the equipment for a high price head haul load as quick as possible. If they denied service to export shippers from the US to Asia to increase equipment cycle time, they would also deny service to the outbound domestic shippers who are now part of their network for the same reason. It's also easy to see them even considering canceling some outbound port calls to further increase cycle time. The net effect would be even less service and higher rates for all shippers to or from those domestic markets. So what's driving the increasing stories criticizing the Jones Act? It's pretty simple. It's an organized marketing campaign under, underwritten by folks who would financially benefit from, from a change. The conduit being used to spread misinformation about the Jones Act is a certain think tank in Washington. While they are no doubt philosophically opposed to the Jones Act at any cost difference, they recognize they can't win public heads and hearts pointing to a moderate cost differences like 16%. They need to cherry pick, exaggerate, and engage in outright fabrication to achieve their desired results. There is a certain cleverness for corporations to funnel lobbying dollars through a think tank, but what the folks at those think tanks are doing has nothing to do with research and everything to do with marketing and public relations. It is nothing more than a marketing narrative substituting for facts and analysis. The think tank I'm referring to is Cato Institute. Their work related to the Jones Act is mainly carried out by one person and that is all he does. All the stories emanate from him, and an echo chamber is developed that recirculates misinformation. He doesn't engage in any primary research of his own, but takes the work of others and slices and dices and extracts whatever best fits his narrative. Here I'm listing a few recent examples. An early study commissioned by him claimed that the Jones Act cost Puerto Rico $1.2 per year. 
putting aside that this is well above total carrier revenue, and it was based on a flawed methodology, this study was replete with math and logic errors that rendered it meaningless, including wide differences in actual nautical mileage. When correcting these errors, even under this flawed approach, the cost difference was actually 155 million per year. That was right in the middle of the five to 10 times inaccuracy rate for most of what has come out from Cato. More recently, outside of the container sector was the ridiculous claim that moving crude and product from the Gulf to the East Coast on Jonesack tankers adds 4.3 billion annually in cost. That is 50 times what an objective an analysis of the facts shows. Finally, in a paper by a European who was a recent college graduate on the impact of shipbuilding subsidies, it was suggested in passing that repealing the Jones Act would increase US economic activity by 128 billion per year. Given that amount is more than 30 times total actual Jones Act revenue and the multiplier effect on basic consumption markets is almost non-existent, that's quite a whopper. Cato banged the an anvil with that a few times, but even they uh, quipped and knew that it couldn't be believable. For specific information related to these examples, please send me an email. This is a graph over the last six reported years of the percent of Cato's contributions coming from corporations. The source of this data is the annual reports available on their website. The person who exclusively worked on the Jones Act joined Cato in late 2017. For 2016 and 2017, corporate contributions were 1.2% of the total and average 466,000 annually. For the last four years, the average is more than double to 2.6% of the total and an average of just over 1 million annually. I believe the difference is driven by corporations funding Cato's campaign to change the Jones Act. More specifically, my speculation is that a particular target of those efforts has been to waive the Jones Act as it relates to the movements of LNG. I base that speculation on the disproportionate amount of attention LNG has been given in articles, podcasts, conferences, and social media. Whatever I have to say about the Cato person who has dedicated the last five years to changing the Jones Act, I certainly can't say he isn't prolific. He averages 11 tweets per day with 100% of those tweets on the Jones Act. So there you have it on some of my views about the Jones Act container sector. The cost impact is moderate and not geometrical. The, intended the unintended consequences from a repeal could be significant for current inbound shippers from both a service and a cost standpoint. And it really does play a national security role, but that's a discussion for a different time. Thank you. Please feel free to contact me with any questions. And thank you, Nicholas. I, I forgot to unmute myself. So. Thank you very much for this um, great and insightful presentation as always. Um, to remind everyone that uh, please uh, email John if you have questions directly or send the questions to us and we'll forward them to John at webinars at capitalink.com. And again, thank you very much. Uh, when we put together our first one, you were one of the key people that helped. And thank you for being with us again this year. Thank you.